Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Berg. On this Monday night, we speak to the family of a 23-year-old BC woman killed in the Mexican resort area of Playa del Carmen late last week. Kara Agnew was there with her boyfriend and police say a 26-year-old Canadian is in custody in connection with her death. Right now, the family is focused on bringing her home and they've started a fundraising effort to help them do that. Activist, politician, lawyer, and Grey Cup champ Balarama Holness has seen and done a lot in less than 40 years, including fighting for social justice and running for mayor of Montreal on top of that Grey Cup. Now he set it all down in a memoir called Eyes on the Horizon, My Journey Toward Justice, and he joins us to tell us all about it. Goldfish, some the size of footballs, have become a real problem in a growing number of BC bodies of water. Where do they come from? Where do they come from? How do they become so invasive? We find out. But first, the Trudeau government today tried to respond to growing pressure to call a public inquiry into allegations of interference by China in the 2019 and 2021 federal elections. The Prime Minister stopped short of calling a full inquiry. Has he done enough? We find out. First up, after weeks of pressure, the Prime Minister today moved to address those concerns about allegations of election interference by China in the 2019 and 2021 federal elections. It's not a public inquiry, as many, including all three major opposition parties, have been asking for repeatedly. The Prime Minister has initiated instead two closed-door investigations that will be reviewed by an as-yet-to-be-named special rapporteur. All we know about that person is they will be, quote, eminent. We're not quite sure what that means, but eminent, um, I suppose it's someone we've already heard of, right? Trudeau made the announcement late today, saying that the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians will study China's interference or allegations of, and the National Security and Intelligence Review Agency will look into how investigations into Chinese election meddling have been handled. We will ask the independent special rapporteur as one of the first tasks of their mandate to provide the government with a recommendation as to what the appropriate next step should be, whether it be an inquiry, an investigation, or a judicial review, and what the scope of that work may be. The Prime Minister late today. Well, how did we get here? A number of reports, including from Global News investigative journalist Sam Cooper, have documented concerns based including on CSIS documents that China interfered in the 2019 and 2021 federal elections, um, specifically targeting candidates they didn't think were good for them, amongst other things. The leaks themselves, by the way, are now under RCMP investigation as well. That's a whole other story. Opposition parties have said that nothing short of a public inquiry will satisfy them. Of course, the NDP here have some leverage. They're in a uh, confidence and supply agreement with the Liberals, but haven't said whether or not they'll ever pull the plug on this government if they don't get the answers they need. Pierre Polyev, the opposition leader, late today said on social media, Trudeau refuses to call a public inquiry into Beijing's interference in our elections. Instead, he wants a secret committee with secret hearings, secret evidence and secret conclusions, all controlled by him. Canadians deserve the open, transparent truth. Well, how true is all of that? Joining me now with more is Michael Kempa. He's a professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa. Michael, thank you. Welcome back. Okay, thank you. So what did you make of today's announcement? I mean, we we didn't know what, quite what to expect, and we got a bit of a grab bag of things. But if you add it all up, what uh, what will we see here? Well, the grab bag is right. We've got a lot of acronyms. And on the one hand, that worries me because it's already difficult for a Canadian watching this to make sense of who's doing what, which makes me nervous. 
So first of all, as you say, we've got the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians and SICOP. This is, um, a, a, it's not a parliamentary committee, but it is a special committee composed of parliamentarians. It includes members of the Liberal Party, the NDP, the Conservatives, the Bloc, and they receive whatever information they ask of security agencies, but they are then sworn to secrecy. So this is the body that in theory would be asking questions about what the PMO knew and when, when it comes to allegations that CSIS warned them about particular candidates, as many as 11 that were receiving a form of support from the uh, Beijing consulate in Toronto, whether the prime minister took that information on, what he did with that information, and so forth. So that's the details. But the trick there, and it's one thing that I would point out Mr. Polyev seems to have right, is that the public will never hear what that committee learns in full because that committee needs the permission, essentially, of the security services to take its message anywhere public. And from there, you go on to NCIRA, which is the Security and Intelligence Review Agency. They look at systems. So they're going to look at how was CSIS cooperating with the CSE, with the RCMP? What are some of the difficulties of turning intelligence into evidence that can be used for police charging and court prosecutions? This doesn't sound much like malfeasance on the part of individuals. This is the systems. So it's all very confusing. One thing, although I do not like the term special rapporteur or whatever we're going with at the moment, this is seeming like a person who's going to look at everything that's being done, who will then say, is anything missing here? Do we need anything more? Do we need that inquiry? And the government has committed to following what the recommendations are of this special rapporteur. So it will really depend on how independent this person is. And I guess once we find out who that person is, that eminent person, as they've said, uh, we'll be able to make our own judgments. How long is this going to take? Because I think there felt like there was a certain urgency here, even though these warnings have been out there for a very long time. These reports have been out there for quite a while. Uh, we don't have an election that's imminent as far as we can tell. But it feels like this is going to take some time. This is not going to be a couple of days. This is going to go on for, I would say, at least a couple of months before we get our bearings. The appointment of the rapporteur, I mean, there's no reason to take more than a couple of days on that. That person surveying what all of these different uh, committee and groupings of reviews is looking at and figuring out what the gaps are, this is looking like a couple of months and the conference today, it, almost, it does appear that this is such a hot issue at the moment. The government wants to slow it down a little bit, buy a little bit of time, maybe try to negotiate with the NDP to bring them around to the idea of this proposal, as opposed to what the NDP was looking for, along with the Conservatives, in terms of going to an independent inquiry straight away. And also, I mean, let's be honest, this is a political um maneuvering game between all the political parties, maybe leaning on the NDP a little bit to say, if you think you can take a message to the Canadian public that they're better off with an inquiry as opposed to this many-layered thing that we're proposing, go right ahead. You're very unlikely to do better at the polls uh, with this very confusing thing that you now have to explain to the electorate. Yeah, the, the political maneuvering has been pretty obvious, but I think most of us, for Canadians who are watching this, we just want to know a few simple things, right? Did you know? 
And if you did, why didn't you do anything about it? Did you gain? Did you know you were going to gain? Did you not? I mean, these are pretty simple questions, right? And it feels like we're not going to hear the answers. No, and that is really the, the crux of this issue. Nobody is under the impression that foreign governments are not trying to impact or influence the outcomes of Canadian elections. And the, it's in common knowledge that the Chinese government in particular is the most organized of the foreign powers for infiltrating Western governments, including Canada. So I don't think that Canadians are under some form of complete uh, mystery here as to the nature of foreign interference. They want pointed answers to those specific questions. We've had leaks and we've got reporting that is allegedly based on CSIS documents. Who knew what, when, and who benefits? Why wasn't something done earlier? about particular candidates if the reporting is accurate coming from Globe, the Globe and Mail and Global News. I mean, because part of the issue here is, and you've pointed this out in an op-ed over the weekend in the National Post, it's complicated. Influence and interference are complicated issues. There, there was probably no yes or no answer here, uh, but it feels like it's high time that we shed a really strong spotlight on it so the public understands what's going on and what's been done to combat it. Well, that's a big one. And for me, uh, as you say, what I wrote about in the post there was our candidate nominations process for all of our political parties happened so far out of the public eye and in the absence of any significant regulation or rules that this is almost the perfect forum for foreign governments or other ideological actors to sort of sneak into the Canadian political system. You know, where we pick our candidates, I think very many people sort of imagine that it's this almost miniature election that follows proper rules. Nothing could be further from reality. It is really about mobilizing, very often for convenience, uh, ethnic blocks within ridings to get people on buses and get them to voting stations on short notice as quickly as possible. We've got to do better as to how we set these things up so that we keep... Um, ideological actors out of hijacking these things. Michael, I want to ask you about the fact that the leaks themselves are being investigated by the RCMP, because that feels like the most concrete thing I've read in the past couple of days in terms of exactly how we're going to, the most direct way of looking into something like this. Well, they got right down to that in that they're saying we are very concerned that there's been apparent leaks either from CSIS or the line of uh, agencies to which CSIS reports. So CSIS documents have somehow made their ways into the hands, as I say, of global and uh, Globe and Mail reporters. It could have come from CSIS itself or through the line with CSIS reporting to the PMO and certain bureaucracies, including Public Safety Canada and so forth. So they want to get to the bottom of where the leaks are coming from because they regard that as a significant threat uh, to national security. And they would argue that this makes us look bad uh, to the other Five Eyes partners. Um, for our major partners for international uh, security and espionage. Now, obviously, there may be legitimacy to that argument, but I think Canadians' main concern is not why were certain CSIS documents making their way into media, but the content of those documents along the lines of accusations that people were warned in the Prime Minister's office about influence from Beijing into the nominations processes um, in the Toronto area. You mentioned it because you did run for nomination back in 2015, as you mentioned, and you just talked about what that process is is like, and you called it the Wild West. Um, it's a pretty pretty vivid description. 
Well, it is very much, and not just for the Liberal Party, for all political parties, and including at the provincial level of uh, government for nominations as well, in that um, these th- political parties are private entities, and nominations are, are conducted under the private rules of political parties, not so much under the general rules of Elections Canada, only with regards to spending. So when and where, for example, a nomination will be held, very often they have very short notice and locations are either announced very late or changed. I think you can imagine that that would have a huge impact on the dynamics of a nomination in that if you're going around signing people up to join a political party to support you in a nomination, if you can't tell people when and where they will be voting, it's very difficult to sign people up to something like that. It almost sounds like a scam to people at the doors. Why would you want their information if you can't even tell them when and where to vote? This makes nomination candidates very dependent on people who say that they can bring forward large numbers of people on things like buses to vote on short notice in undisclosed locations far in advance. So, for example, if a Chinese consulate was to say, we're sending 300 voters Let's say there's students that have visas that can be yanked by the Chinese government to send uh, the students back to China. We will send 300 students to vote for you if you'll remember us later on. Now, if you turn that down, the consulate has already said they're sending those votes somewhere. If you don't take them, your competitor will take them and you'll lose that nomination. So this structure is a poor one for keeping that kind of corruption out of the process. And when we get right down to it, public inquiry or what we heard today, what do you think would shed more light and solve these problems quicker, not for the politics of it, but for the rest of us? Well, if you're looking at systems, what what we've got in place is appropriate. But I'll just point out that these same committees have made reports looking into these systemic failures and shortcomings at a broad level in the past, and we've done very little with the recommendations. If you're looking more for culpability, like who knew what when and who made inappropriate judgments along the way, whether we're talking about within the PMO, within political parties, within specific nomination contests, that's when you're getting into a judicial inquiry, because it is only at an inquiry where you can compel evidence under oath, the compulsion of documents, A judge can review certain things in camera if they can't become matters of public knowledge and sign attestations that they've gone through that evidence. It's really an inquiry that cuts through that kind of question of who specifically is responsible, who has done the wrong things. Michael Keppa, we'll leave it there. As always, thank you. Thank you kindly. Well, as we've been talking about uh, so far during the show, the National Security Committee of Parliamentarians will be looking into allegations of foreign interference in Canada's recent elections. The Prime Minister announced that today. He did not call the public inquiry, the judicial inquiry that many have been asking for, but he did announce a two-pronged approach to this with two separate investigations going on. One of them, of course, will be fully secret. Uh, There is a special rapporteur in place as well who will be announced in the next few days to oversee all this and see if there are gaps. So, It was a bit of a half turn from the Prime Minister who spent the last um, several days or weeks sort of not going forward with demands or not acquiescing to to demands for a public inquiry. He still isn't, by the way. This follows, of course, reports in the Global Mail and Global News that cited security sources and CSIS documents alleging China tried to meddle in the 2019 and 2021 elections. Here's the Prime Minister. 
We've seen a level of partisanship around this question that for me requires us to take a step back and to task an eminent, unimpeachable expert respected and trusted by Canadians to be able to make recommendations as to what the best path is forward. I'm not sure this is really a question of partisanship. I think a lot of what, I mean, there's certainly some partisanship and some politics going on here, but a lot of what's been asked for by all the opposition parties, as well as a number of security experts, retired security experts, is for this public inquiry to take the politics out of it. It feels like today there was more politics going on. Of course, the opposition parties have said nothing short of a public inquiry will satisfy them. The rapporteur could conceivably recommend calling an inquiry, but that would be down the line a little bit. It comes after the head of CSIS last week said the main threat to the integrity of our country's elections comes from China, but not from the Chinese people. David, David Vigneault was testifying in front of the Procedure and House Affairs Committee. We have been clear that the principal threat to Canada comes from the People's Republic of China. But to be clear, the threat does not come from the Chinese people, but rather from the Chinese Communist Party and the government of China. Indeed, we are keenly aware that Chinese communities are often the primary victims of PRC foreign interference efforts in Canada. That was CSIS head David Vigneault last week. Now, these allegations of interference are nothing new. Those targeted by Beijing, including people who advocate on topics such as Tibet, treatment of the Uyghur minority in Xinjiang, human rights in Hong Kong, Taiwan, the list goes on and on. Uh, they've been going on for years. Member, members of Canada's Chinese community have been calling for a robust investigation and public inquiry into election interferences and offences. And that after sounding the alarm about intimidation and interference tactics going back many years now. Bill Chu is with the Chinese-Canadian Concern Group on the Chinese Communist Party's human rights violations, and he joins me now uh, from Vancouver. Bill, thank you. Thanks for having me. What was your reaction to today's announcement? I know that you'd spoken about the need for transparency. Did you get, did you get what you needed today? Not a whole lot. Um... Although he proclaimed that it's uh, to be something more independent, but I think uh, he also mentioned that uh, the National Security and Intelligence Committee of the Parliamentarians would also be part of that uh, that, that, that system. Uh, and, and, and I'm afraid, you know, it still is a partisan group of people uh, within the among the MPs. Uh, the, the makeup of that that particular, you know, committee itself speaks for itself because if the majority of them would be liberals, and then the um, so it's almost equivalent to having a uh, a uh, partisan group, you know, leading the the entire uh, investigation. Uh, and to me, that's uh, lack, lacking, you know, the kind of transparency that we need. Yeah, and it'll be done in secret for the most part as well. How does it work? I mean, I think a lot of people have been asking themselves, I mean, I know that people within the Chinese community in Canada have been warning about this for years. I remember covering, you know, stories back in 15, 18 years ago about stories like this mm -hmm. when it involved Tibet or, or other hot button issues. How does it mm -hmm. manifest itself within the community as you see it, Bill? Well, this is why it's uh, perplexing uh, for us because it's not something new. Uh, in other words, this all this meddling and, and undue influence within our community first and then expanded to other communities. Uh, it's we are almost like the proverbial, you know, 
cannery sitting in a coal mine, you know. Uh, but nobody even bothered to check us, you know. And, yeah. and, and, and right now, you know, it's asking almost too late because if you, if you really check around, you know, there, there's very few Chinese Canadians who would even want to speak on the subject because of all the new influence that has been happening. Uh, tell me, uh, tell me about the, the because we talk a lot about the in- interference, but I, I sense that the, it's the intimidation that is more of a concern. How does that work? Well, that works in a very strange way um, because unlike Canada, which is pluralistic in terms of its uh, ideology, you know we accept all kinds of parties within our political systems, but China happened to be a one-party system which actually outlaws pluralism. And this is why I find it really strange when Canadians said, you know, okay, communism seemed to work for China, so why why wouldn't it work here? <laughs> you know, so I I find that really very you know logistically or logically uh, very foolish to think that way because if if one can be so pluralistic, can one be so pluralistic that one will accept an ideology that excludes or incriminates pluralism? But but that's on the philosophical side. On the real side, you know, what we are seeing is the steady erosion of uh, opinions within our, our our community. Because China, you know, because uh, of the fact that it's a one one party system, it it tried to impose its views once it tried to enter the the world stage. It tried to impose its views and narratives and ideology worldwide. And that's where the the problem lies, because uh, in the Chinese community, they use the Chinese language, Chinese media, etc., to broadcast and deepen and project their their soft power. And that's something that other Canadians may not be exposed to. In other words, you know, the the backing of uh, orders, almost like orders from uh, from Beijing. You know, we 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 hear that on the news. Because there seem to be more of more and more of those kind of broadcasting in our Chinese language media. So that so, um, li- yeah. so that listeners understand, there is there are many many uh, divisions within the Chinese. I mean, we talk about the Chinese diaspora as if it were one thing, when in fact we know it's many different things. We have large groups of people who've come to this country from Hong Kong, from southern China, where they speak Cantonese. We have newer groups of people who've come from the mainland, who have uh, who are Mandarin speaking. There are divisions within all of this as well. Uh, how does th- how does that work? How is the changing face of the Chinese diaspora uh, played into this whole what we're watching unfold these days? Oh, obviously, those from uh, particularly the oppressed groups, you know, for example, you mentioned about Tibet, Xinjiang, you know, Hong Kong and Taiwan, etc. You know, those those groups have been under, you know, all kinds of either threats or physical violence uh, by China itself. So so they they are aware of the implications. Uh, and then for older Old timers, I guess they, they in Canada, they 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 knew uh, they came here for a reason, you know, or their forefathers came here for a reason to escape communism, you know, way back, and try to seek a better life here. Um, so a lot of people understand that, and so, but but it's the 
the the reality, you know, they, that they are put into in the Chinese community that's um, not intimidating in the sense that there seem to be others working or, 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 or saying a different version of reality, projecting a different reality, a, a different version of of who to be patriot to, you know, or to direct our patriotism to. Yeah, and it can be tough if you have family back on the mainland. It can be tough if you do business, if part of your way you make a living in Canada is by having to try to do business back home, which many people attempt to do because it simply makes sense. I mean, in some senses, people here can find themselves at the mercy of Beijing because they're in vulnerable positions, whether it be because of family ties, visa ties, any number of things. Exactly, exactly. And and they are using that link to extend their soft power in establishing, you know, more organization here and then collectively even putting full page ads in the new in the Chinese language newspaper supporting the policies of China, which is something unheard of in the mainstream uh Canadian society, you know, in other words you don't find ads like that in in ma- mainstream papers or rarely find that. Uh, Bill, I was just seeing that uh, Qin Gang, the new Chinese foreign minister, has been talking this morning in Beijing, uh, talking, of course, about Taiwan and America and all those issues that matter so much to Beijing. Where does Canada fit into all this? Because I, having spent time there as a reporter in Beijing, I know Canada's not high up their list of priorities. So what's going on, do you think, with this sort of interference? Well, Beijing have been trying to suggest that Taiwan is part of China for a long time, and it's uh, uh, doing all kinds of things in the South China Sea. So, so it's uh, of international significance what they're doing uh, in, in that region. And it's uh, and Canada being a, a uh, one of the Five Eyes uh, Alliance, it should be paying full attention to what China is trying to do there, if not for the sake of. Uh, is our own security here because, uh, you know, lately we have seen balloons from China flying overhead. We have seen uh, their, their monitoring buoys floating in our right. Arctic Ocean. We have seen uh, or we have heard of their police running in our cities. And then we have seen their software doing all, all it can to collect data here. So, I mean, how can... Our country not be interested in the in what China is trying to do. Um, do, you think, do you think we're seen as a weak link, Bill, in that whole system? Because I know Australia is really beefed up of late. The Americans are certainly paying close attention. Do you think Canada's seen as a bit of a a bit of a soft underbelly in that whole in that whole well, world we, of our allies? Unfortunately, we have been looked upon as one of the the weak elements within the five eyes, and uh, this is why we've been urged to. You know, by 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 others to do to pick up the pace a little bit in the, in, in terms of our monitoring and our even defense system. What's we the have mood? the longest oh, coastline, so, right? <laughs> don't yeah, forget that. Of course. What's been the mood within the community? I know that you don't speak for the entire community, as I was mentioning earlier. It's a it's a broad from all mm-hmm. parts of China. China is a huge country. With you know, we know how many people are there. But what's the sense within the community now with with all this spotlight, all this attention on this issue? Uh, I know that the CSIS, the head of CSIS, must have brought it up on purpose to make sure that Canadians don't start to you know 
confuse the actions of, of Beijing with the actions of Chinese Canadians? No, uh, because Beijing has been doing more than it can to, to uh, mix up the country with the party. You know, for example, this, the Communist Party itself is what we are focusing on. But they keep saying, oh, we are, we are, we are criticizing China and by extension, all the Chinese. And they, they keep using the, the, the phrase, if you listen uh, to their uh, in Chinese language uh, uh, broadcast, they would mm-hmm. keep saying, you're hurting the feelings of 1.4 billion Chinese. You know, that's a famous fa- phrase used over and over. And it's as if, you know, um, any criticism directed against the CCP, uh, according to them, is a criticism against, you know, all Chinese. And that that's, that to, to, to us sounds very uncomfortable because they're dragging us into something which is not real. As you say, you know, we are so diversified in terms of where we came from and our political outlooks and history, etc. And somehow they, they, they are trying to uh, at least give the image and, and, and also, you know, trying to constantly reminding Chinese diaspora that we are part of China, you know, they, that that's uh, because according to their own uh, immigration law, if we immigrate to other countries, we, we basically have to denounce our, or stop our uh, somehow, uh, not denounce, but to uh, have given up our citizenship or relinquish, uh, in, yeah. yeah, relinquish it. And if we don't do it in 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 in, in, for, in a formal way, then we are in their eyes still treated as Chinese. <laughs> yeah, and of course we hear politicians of all stripes in this country repeat some of those lines that I'm, I was so familiar with when I was working in in Beijing uh, years ago. With all this happening, do you feel like maybe just maybe this time? there'll be more protection for the community going forward against these sorts of tactics? Well, we certainly look forward to the day when Canada would look at the welfare of the Chinese Canadians as equal to other Canadians, meaning that, you know, we are not just sort of because we are so-called under the multiculturalism that we somehow become another, you know, community. And so we they can, you know, sort of, leave the whatever media doing whatever you know sayings within our own uh, media world uh, because then then we we are we we are exposed to messages and directives which i think is unhealthy you know sometimes it's not so much whether the, uh, the chinese people in the chinese community are pro plc because they are trying to project that image over and over and over. It's almost like brainwashing you. And, uh, and that's the, 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 the tough part for many of us. And so we are looking forward to this investigation to be full and transparent rather than other Mickey Mouse, you know, one dominated by the liberals. And you've been warning for years, right? I know you've been warning for years. So here we are. Bill Chu, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. 
I'm not sure you saw this story over the weekend, but a woman from Dawson's Creek, BC, has been found dead in uh, at a hotel resort in Playa del Carmen in Mexico. That's a resort just south of Cancun, very popular place. Uh, Mexican prosecutors confirmed the woman was found dead Friday, adding a 26-year-old Canadian man is in custody and possible charges are being considered. A tweet from Mexican police, uh, the Mexican police force stated that a foreign national is being investigated, a Canadian, for the crime of femicide. Um, the woman, 23-year-old Kiara Agnew, was in Mexico with her boyfriend at the time of her death. Canadian press reporter Emily Javesky has more. Her family says on a GoFundMe page that Agnew went on what was supposed to be a dream birthday vacation to Mexico with her boyfriend. But that turned into a nightmare when relatives were notified of her death on Friday. Agnew's mother says her body will be returned to Dawson Creek. And the family is in the process of fundraising because that is, A, very complicated and expensive. Um, Agnew worked at the Lakeview Credit Union, which has an office in Dawson Creek. They posted on social media over the weekend saying, all at Lakeview Credit Union are mourning the loss of our teammate and friend, Kara Agnew. Uh, we send our love and faith to all others who've been impacted. Global Affairs Canada said that they are aware of the death of a Canadian citizen, as well as the detention of another Canadian in Mexico, but consular officials uh, are providing consular assistance to the families and are in contact with local authorities, but couldn't say anything else due to privacy considerations. Well, Tanya Roberts is Kiara Agnew's aunt. She's in New Brunswick, where Kiara spent the early part of her years before moving out west, and she joins me. Now, Tanya, first of all, our condolences, of course, to your family and all of Kiara's loved ones tonight. Thank you. It's, there's really no combination of words that can put into what the last few days have been for our family. It's a nightmare. Tell me a bit about this, about, about, about Kiara, because, you know, she seems to have had such a, she was such a vibrant young woman. Uh, yeah, she absolutely was. She absolutely loved life. She loved pets and any little critter that needed help. Kiara was the one there helping it. Um, she loved traveling and hiking. And um, most importantly, she, she loved her siblings and her sister and her were very close um, unfortunately, we recently lost her brother as well two years ago. So this is a second loss for her mom and dad in two years. Tell me a bit about this holiday because she's turning 24, I gather, on the weekend, right? Or would have turned 24 coming up and this was a celebration. Yes, it was supposed to be for her dream trip. She, I read some messages that uh, she had sent and they had planned a few excursions and we're going to go snorkeling and she was just thrilled uh, Thursday evening when she, when they arrived at the resort she uh, was talking with her on Caitlin and showing her the pool and was just so excited about their plans for the week ahead and unfortunately she didn't make it through the night how did the how was the family notified Ottawa was notified first from the Mexican authorities and they tracked down Kiara's address um, and the RCMP went to Kiara's address in Dawson Creek and Kiara's mom, Michelle, was there when the RCMP showed up and um, told her the unfortunate news. We know someone. Do we know anything about the circumstances? Uh, well, from from what we're told is a hotel resort worker found them in the laundry room and Kiara was noticeably beaten very, very badly. 
he was um, laying beside her, covered in her blood. Her, his hands were really, really swollen. And um, when he woke up, the, the police and everybody came. She didn't have any vitals at that time. And there was enough evidence there that the Mexican authorities had enough to hold him for suspicion of murder and their terminology that they use is femicide, which is a crime against a woman. How has it been trying to get in for trying to stay sort of clued into what's happening? Because it can be tough with the language barrier, with the with the different jurisdictions. It's that is the most difficult part. There's a huge language barrier. Uh, we haven't even really been able to speak to the authorities. Everything is going through uh, the Canadian consulate in Ottawa, we kind of send them a message and then they'll try to get the answers for us. There has been a funeral home down there that has been absolutely wonderful uh, with my sister-in-law trying to work with the authorities down there to get her home. Um, that's that's our main priority right now is to get her home. Yeah, I, 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 the... Um... Do you know much about the relationship? I mean, I, I gather from reading that it is the twenty-six-year-old Canadian who presumably is is her boyfriend who's been arrested. Uh, yeah. Was the relationship uh, causing any red flags for anyone? Well, uh, like in most domestic violence situations, Kira kept it to herself. Uh, she did. She was extremely close with her little sister. Um, and she was aware of some of it and was starting to get so concerned that she started kind of keeping track of it. Um, but Kiera loved this man and, you know, the, the closest people, people to her had no idea what was going on. Um, now we know that it, it, there was abuse in, in the past and um, they were together for about a year and a half. From what I understand, it mainly occurred when, when he was drinking. Now that's that's just what I've been told. Yeah, uh, the reaction from Dawson Creek, from New Brunswick. I mean, she she was she grew she was born in New Brunswick, right? The family's originally from there, and then moved out west when she was a teen. Yeah, um, she's originally from Plast Rock, a small little community of maybe fifteen hundred, and her dad moved out and to Alberta first, probably when they were thirteen, fourteen, and then she moved to um, Dawson Creek with her mom and. Um, and she's been living there ever since and created a beautiful little life for herself. Yeah, she she looked like she was working at uh, at a credit union, is that right? They've been talking about it as well. She seemed to have really excelled as she hit as she hit adulthood. Yeah, and I was reading the comments from some of her clients and you know, it's just so heartwarming to hear their memories of her and you know, she was always smiling and happy and so willing and eager to help it. It's a loss for everyone. She was an absolutely wonderful young lady, and it's a shame that we're not going to see where she could have went in her life. Just the logistics of, of everything that you must be facing right now must be so incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. But one of the things you've been trying to do is is just is bring her back. And I and I gather, of course, there's expenses involved in that, and you're looking to um, to the rest of us for a little bit of help because I think at this time, uh, people are only too willing to help your family. Yes, absolutely. Um, the overwhelming amount of support we've received, I mean, not only from Canada, now worldwide, people from the UK are reaching out to us. It's it's affected a lot of people. Um, and like you said, the cost is 
is a lot for for our family. It was very unexpected, and every day it keeps changing. Um, at first, we thought it was going to be around ten thousand dollars, and now the Mexican authorities are charging a six thousand dollar U.S. charge just to take her body to the airport. Like it's it's every day it changes, and every day it changes by like tens of thousands of dollars, and of course, no cost is like we'll do whatever we have to do to get her home. That's all her mom and dad want right now, and it is breaking them even more knowing that she is in another country and not here with us. Yeah, and just the just the the the, the pressures on the family of trying to cope with such a tragic event and try to negotiate, sort of organize all this must be must be unbelievable. You've been supporting mm-hmm. each other, though. I know you've been. I've been seeing sort of Facebook posts. The family has come together as well here. Yes, both sides of the family. Um, her parents were have been divorced for, you know, probably 15 years. And, you know, everybody's coming together. And they were out at their daughter's house today, you know, just making phone calls to Mexico and, you know, just doing their best. They're working together to to bring to bring our girl home. Is there a, is there a timeline? Do you think is there is there a, uh, will you be going down there or the family go down? How does it work? Well, we're we're hoping um, this, like I said, this um, funeral home has been really really helpful. They know the players. They know uh, the airport that does these type of they call it cargo mm-hmm. uh, shipments, and um, so they've been really taking the lead on it for us. We're just waiting for the autopsy to be completed. Um, sometimes we they tell us it can be a day or two, and sometimes it's two weeks. So uh, it's it's really hard to put a timeline. But every day we're calling and making calls, and our our uh, the Canadian consulate is doing their best to to get our girl home. I know that when it comes to the seeking justice here, that this maybe takes some time. But I also know the family's been asking for respect for everybody involved in this, because as always in these cases, there's another family out there, too, who are coping with something that they didn't expect to happen. Absolutely. Um, You know, his mom reached out to me and her and I have been in contact. And I mean, she's she's devastated as well. She's devastated for us and our loss. She's devastated at the thought that her child could do this. She seems a very, very sincere and a very lovely woman who, like all of us, just wants answers. And she was very upfront and said, you know, it's hard for me to think my child did this. But if he did, he he does need to be held accountable. So, I mean, I have much empathy for them, too. I, I can't imagine, you know, the dynamics of their life right now. It, it's probably just as challenging and a different way. How would you like Kiara to be remembered? Well, I, I mean, her picture says it all, that big, beautiful smile. I mean, she was stunning. She was always so smart. Um, when she was young, she was reading like at a university level in school and they did, you know, a report on her back then. I mean, she she's a brilliant girl and she could have went so far and, um, just really ashamed that she was taken from us and everybody else. Tanya Roberts, again, our condolences to you, the entire family. Uh, I hope this this whole process of bringing her home is is as painless as possible. 
Uh, I know how complicated it can be, but but we wish you all the best. Thank you, Ben. Some people read, lead, or have had very interesting lives. And my next guest is one of those people, born to a Jamaican father and a Quebecois mom who met at a Bob Marley concert at the Montreal Forum back in 1979. Balarama Holness would spend much of his childhood in a Hindu ashram in West Virginia with his mom before moving back to Montreal, where he would spend much of his youth. He has a twin brother. Football would play a pivotal part in the young in his young life. It would see him head to the University of Ottawa in his late teens and then suit up in the CFL. He was drafted by Winnipeg, and uh, he was a member of the Grey Cup-winning Montreal Alouettes in 2010, his hometown. But that would just be one chapter in a story that has seen many, many interesting chapters. He would go on to earn a law degree, to add to four other degrees that he has, open up and fight for and succeed in pushing Montreal City Hall to hold hearings on systemic racism. That resulted in a report that found that City Hall had been turning a blind eye to racial profiling by police in that city. Quebec's premier that appointed two black ministers to lead an anti-racism task force based on his work. In 2020, a New York Times feature on him was called The Man Striving to Be the Canadian Obama. And he's tried his hand at politics, running for mayor of the Montreal Borough of Montreal North in 2017, and again for mayor of Montreal in the last municipal election in 2021, finishing third but still making an impact on the race and earning 7% of the popular vote. He then helped create his own political party called Bloc Montreal and ran in the 2022 provincial election. Here he is announcing what that party stands for. Bloc Montreal was created to represent Montrealers at the National Assembly and to advocate for more uh, fiscal and political autonomy. Um, right now, Montrealers, allophones, anglophones, francophones, they live, they work, they play in harmony in this beautiful metropolis. However, there is a provincial government that has been imposing legislation that disproportionately impacts Montrealers. That was Balarama Holness uh, announcing the launch of Bloc Montreal uh, in the last provincial election. He's not yet 40, as I mentioned, but he's detailed his path so far, that fascinating journey already, in a memoir set to be released tomorrow called Eyes on the Horizon, My Journey Toward Justice. An activist, lawyer, politician, Grey Cup champ, and now author Balarama Holness joins me from Montreal. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a really interesting title, Eyes on the Horizon, because it says so much about, about sort of where you've been and where you're going. But tell me a bit about, about your motivation for, for putting this all down on paper. You've had a truly a unique life. Yeah, well, first of all, the title, Eyes on the Horizon, and for those of you that are going to read the book, I'm sure many of you will, it's to ensure that despite the ups and downs in our lives, and in the book I talk about whether it's close death in the family or challenges that I had as a youth or even athletically or even in politics is to also to always keep your vision a little further down uh, the line because you can come and be faced with these difficult challenges and you feel as though it's it's impossible, these impossible feats and these impossible obstacles. But keeping your eyes on the horizon helps you remain resilient and keeps your vision where it, it should be. In regards to my youth, yeah, this deeply spiritually anchored youth whereby I'm raised in an ashram allows me to once again overcome a lot of the obstacles that I face in my life. 
the motivation for sitting down and writing this because you've you've done many things over many many years uh you moved around quite a bit as a kid uh you grew up in a society where you were different because you looked different and you came you 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 were a vegetarian as a kid you had this hindu background as well which which was different um you always had to get used to being different and it's kind of shaped you in here and a lot of it comes out in the book yeah well one of the main motivations is to share a story that i believe a lot of people uh, throughout Canada will, and, and throughout the U.S. will be able to resonate with. It's a story that is based on a fair amount of resilience. And that's something that throughout my life, despite uh, the many challenges, it's laying out the resilience. And now the book provides with a clear blueprint on how to overcome those elements, particularly when it comes to injustice, when it comes to fighting and combating really what I see as unjust laws and unjust institutions, but also how to do that in a positive way through personal empowerment and community development. So I, I believe it's it's really a blueprint that can help not just minorities, but people at large uh, understand how to advance and create a society that we deem uh, more just and, and to build a place that we can all call home. Reading through, I mean, your father was from Jamaica, your mother is Quebecois, mm. uh, reading about both of, your mom, particularly, because I grew up with lots of, I had lots of teachers who were, who were like your mom, sort of, they were adventurers, they'd come from small places and grew up in a very strict environment, but they were wide open to the world, they wanted to see things and do things, and uh that that must be an interesting inspiration for you too, because she she was she seemed very tolerant through the pages. I mean, it wasn't always perfect, but her ability to embrace other things seems to have uh, seems to permeate your story as well. For sure. And if many people wonder why I keep jumping into politics and how I can, you know, in the book we I speak about traveling all over the world from Malaysia, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, China, Turkey. And I'm always on this, really, this journey, this adventure. And that's what the book is really, this life and this adventure. I get that from my mother, uh, someone who was always willing to take not just adventures, but risks. And it's something that I've I've lived through my life. And I I continue to embody her spirit on on all the things that I traverse in my life, including um, moving forward in the journey that's ahead of me. And your father, who was... um... You know, a, a great track athlete back in Jamaica, then came to Canada, got a degree in science, worked in science, but then found himself a bit alienated from what was happening in, in the culture around him. And that also seems to permeate your awareness of those two different, those two, that dichotomy seems to come through in the book, too. Yeah. And, and my father, despite the fact that he does not have the willingness, I think, to really integrate and conform. He 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 truly remained this kind of rebellious, uh, anti-conformist, uh, revolutionary in his own way and lives a very pious life whereby he's connected to Hinduism, but a deeply spiritual and intellectual man that that guides me. So along this journey that I'm going through, my father becomes in many ways, uh, my rock when I am at rock bottom or I am about to embark on a difficult feat, whether it's how to run this election and 
put myself up against these two political tyrants, if you will want to call them that, these political geniuses or yeah. giants, if you will. I don't know about genius, but Denis Coderre and Valerie Plante and these yeah. two mayoral candidates. My father always... He, he's like that sage on top of the mountain that you go see for guidance. And along my journey, he's the person that I really count on to, to help ground me and guide me. It's a wonderful story about how your parents met because I, my, my parents went to see Bob Marley uh, a few years earlier. And Bob Marley, that would have been his final concert in Montreal where your parents met at the forum of all places, the Montreal forum. Yeah. And, and I think that's, and that's how I start the book. And the reason is because somehow or another, the divisions in society erase at this concert. So my father being a Jamaican man from the countryside, who's an Anglophone, and my mother, this French Canadian woman from the East End of Montreal, they meet and they fall in love. And this comes at a time where we're a year away from a referendum uh, in Quebec. So the social tensions are extremely high. The quiet revolution had died down by then. However, uh, things were still um, very tense. And they fall in love. And this is the very essence of my DNA, which is to erase the divisions in society, just like Bob Marley did at that infamous concert in 79. Balarama Holness is with us this half hour. He is a activist politician, Grey Cup champ. His book is called Eyes on the Horizon. It's a memoir. It's out tomorrow. It begins with his parents meeting at a Bob Marley concert back in 1979 in Montreal. His father, Jamaican, his mother, Quebecois, from the East End of Montreal. And what happened there, it is quite the journey full of great Great moments and some down moments as well. Some, I mean, there were times in that book as you go through it where things could have turned out very differently for me. And you reflect on that too, the sort of how you managed to navigate your way through some tough times to that Grey Cup, for instance. Yeah, and and the Grey Cup uh, championship that I won with the Alouettes really was symbolic of all, all the obstacles that I had overcome. So in high school, I had a lot of challenges and I began to really fall off track. And one day I was 18 years old. I had dropped out of secondary four, had failed, which is equivalent of grade 10. And I saw a football player who was 5'11", 180 pounds on television. And I told myself, well, I can do that. Um, And it got me back on track. I, I kind of put my negative influences aside Seven years later, I was in the CFL. And it speaks to the importance of, of role models and speaks to the importance of tapping into your potential. You know, like I failed high school, but what's fascinating is the question I asked myself is, did high school fail me? How is it possible to have a great cup champion, a mayoral candidate, and an author who can't pass secondary four or grade 10? Well, it's because we didn't have the infrastructure and the support necessary to really nurture our youth. And this is the kind of mission I've been going along throughout my life is not just through sports, but also how academia can empower uh, ourselves and how education can at large. And so the Grey Cup was certainly a a blessing in my life, but it was really um, indicative of everything that I had to overcome throughout my life. Yeah. And it struck me while reading it, that it was also just the end of one chapter, right? For many, it would be the highlight. And I think for you, it was one of, <laughs> one of the highlights, but it was just the end of a chapter. You go on quickly to do something else. You, you open you open a youth center, right? Well, yeah. So I, I start coaching and mentoring youth and I end up really guiding them and giving them the same mentorship that I hoped to have when I was in high school or even younger. And it turns out that a few of them actually arrived at the CFL and many of them up until this day are coaching. Um, for example, like Nathan Taylor is actually um, coach 
uh, in Ottawa right now for University of Ottawa. And we've really, well, I tried to build a place that athletes can really empower themselves academically and athletically. And these are, once again, the, the kind of blueprints that I'm attempting to um, share with the world through whether it's community involvement or in later on in the book, as people may know, uh, through mm-hmm. politics. Tell me about the politics, because it's an interesting approach. It's very much um, when you ran uh, Bloc Montréal, which was sort of a a party that really looked at trying to emphasize the diversity of Montreal and how to harness it in a better way, because Montreal politics has often been very us versus them over many, many generations. I remember it well from growing up there. What is your political vision that way? And how do you think it applies not just to cities, but right across the country? The reason why I got into politics was quite simple. I was reading a essay during my master's of education. And I was thinking a lot about my childhood. And there was a very simple quote that drove me to jump into politics, which was the definition of politics, which is simply who gets what, who gets a sports center, who has access to leisure sports, recreation infrastructure, who has access to quality transportation. And all these questions and all these concerns that I had reflecting on my childhood I felt that we can do a better job of governance and redistributing wealth uh, in in the political world. So there you go. I I jump in headfirst. I go to apply and get into McGill Law. I run for mayor of Montreal North, which is uh, one of the poorest boroughs in, in all of Canada. And the goal, I think, of governance and politics across Canada should be how do you help the lower and middle class. And I think that we hear this time and time again of whether it's dental care, whether it's investing in public education, whether it's investing in more infrastructure in our communities, but the the money and the funds and the support never seems to get there. And so I have this kind of innocent optimism that uh, we could not just join politics and existing parties, but build our own parties. And that's what I did with Mouvement Montréal and Bloc Montréal. It's building these parties to ensure that once we do get elected, we're going to be able to share and implement our vision uh, through concrete things like budget allocations and feel as though we're actually making a difference. You mentioned for Montreal North, which is a borough of Montreal in the north of the city, as of the island of the city, as the name suggests. Why areas that need the most always seem to get the least? What do you make of what do you make of, of populism and sort of this idea of of um, because we see a lot of we saw it certainly in the U.S. where where you see a lot of people drifting towards a more populist nationalist view of this, and that seems to kind of go counter to what you're trying to talk about. Yeah, well, we've seen a rise, and what's Certainly a concern, you know, I mentioned Trump a few times and and the reason is because once he was elected, I feel he emboldened not just Americans who felt like uh, they could be openly discriminatory, but also Canadians. And and I, I do not want to uh, paint all the issues that happened in front of our parliament as people who had discriminatory views, but I felt as though Canada was impacted by what was happening in in the U.S. And I feel what was very important for us to do here in Montreal is continue to work at the community and grassroots level and not feel overwhelmed with whether it's populism or the rise of far right wing or uh, extremist views is to really stay grounded at the community level. And that's where we can make um, the most impact. And that's what we really tried to do, creating min- local parties. I felt that like that was the way that we were going to address these issues and not feel overwhelmed by the worldly trials and tribulations that we have across national, international stages. 
Yeah, you're right, because so much of what happens at the national stage does feel very distant from the local stage. You saw that growing up. You grew up in many different places. You were in West Virginia, then you were back in Montreal, then you were out in sort of the suburbs of Montreal, then Ottawa, then back to Montreal, then to Ottawa for university. I mean, you've been yeah. everywhere. And, and I guess when you look at it, you could tell that that what really matters is is on the ground, right? Right on the ground, as opposed to sort of these, you know, fighting over federal politics, as we always tend to do. Absolutely. And and that's why the book, I always bring it back to building a place you can call home. Growing up, I'm not necessarily around my parents. My mother is in and out of my life. My father is absent because this ashram is in West Virginia. And my father continued to live in Montreal. And uh, thinking about Montreal and growing up, it's that whether it's a language you spoke or the religion you had, or regardless of what it is, and we can think about this across Canada, is do we have cities, do we have provinces that feel like home? And many people in Quebec, because of what's happening at the provincial level with certain laws such as Bill 21 and others, uh, well, they don't feel like they have a home. So that intersects also with this idea of a local community level uh, politics, which is building really communities that you could feel at, at, at peace and, and you feel like you have a place and you can come as you are. And that's what I'm hoping to do as I continue the journey. Well, Balarama Holness, congratulations on Eyes on the Horizon. It's out tomorrow. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. The ship has reached the shore. Just five uh, quick words there. The ship has reached the shore. And yet with that, at uh, 9.30 p.m. New York time on Saturday night, came to an end. 15 years of negotiations, 15 years they've been talking about this. And they finally had a deal, a treaty. Member states of the United Nations agreed on Saturday to a text on the first international treaty uh, to protect the high seas a fragile and vital treasure, of course. It covers nearly half the planet. The high seas are qualified as anything that lies outside your territorial boundaries, so everything outside that two-mile radius off the shores of countries such as Canada. Now, the exact wording is not available just yet, but a lot of people are saying this is a huge breakthrough uh, for the protection of biodiversity on the high seas after 15 years of discussion. It places 30% of the world's oceans into protected areas, 30%, which is a, a great amount considering it covers 50% of, uh, of our territory, 30% of that. Uh, it puts more money into marine conservation and it means new rules for mining at sea as well. We often think of overfishing and so on as, and climate change and pollution as being some of the big problems that happen at, at sea uh, in the high seas at least. But mining has become an issue now as well. Um, environmental groups also say it'll help reverse biodiversity losses, help ensure sustainable development and so on and so on and so forth. More than 190 countries were involved in negotiating the agreement. That is... 190 countries, that's a lot of countries to get to agree on anything these days, let alone something that involves the sea. Um, and again, I guess it was like, it, it depends where you where you look, but some are saying 20 years of multilateral efforts, others say it was 15. Regardless, it was a very, very long time. And that last session, when the ship reached the shore, was uh, the end of a 36-hour long session, during which prospects for success, again, as they always were, or are, were not guaranteed.
Uh, Boris Worm is a professor of marine conservation biology at Dalhousie University. He was very excited about this development since he spent his career advocating for this while practicing marine biology. And he joins us now from Halifax. Thank you for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. Anytime the UN agrees to something this vast and this many countries sign on uh, or seem to sign on, at least to the initial wording, uh, it's such a big deal. How big a deal is this one? Well, for me personally, it's sort of the biggest news of my lifetime because uh, I've been waiting uh, for a long time for something like this to be to be done. The high seas is just this enormous place that most people will never see. It's 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 far out there. It only begins 200 miles from the next shoreline, but it does cover in aggregate almost half of our planet and about two thirds of the ocean space on our blue planet. So. It's a huge part of our biosphere with uh, potentially millions of species living out there, many of which we haven't described. And so far, we had no environmental legislation to protect those species other than, you know, some fisheries frameworks and specific frameworks to particular industries. But uh, there was no mechanism, for example, to set up protected areas in this place. And that has changed now. And it's just it's just a really big deal. It's it's thirty percent, right? Of the world's uh, of the high seas would be turned into protected areas by the end of the decade. That seems like a that seems like a huge amount of water. <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> yeah. So you know, I think we are at this time where um, the world is really coming together for the first time that I can remember to become very serious about protecting species both on land and in the water through protected areas and. What we've seen in Montreal in December in the COP15, the Biodiversity Conference, was that countries decided to protect 30% of all land and all waters by 2030 to make sure we're not entering another extinction crisis and that we're safeguarding the building blocks of our life support system on this planet. And to me, that really redefines our collective relationship with nature. It's 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 huge. And in order to make that work, um, they kind of also had to look at the high seas because, as I said, about half of the planet is high seas. So if you would exempt them from protection because there's no legal way of doing that, doing protected areas there, then uh, you would have to really up the ante in, in coastal areas and all of the, the burden of protection, if you will, would go to individual nations. So this is a way of spreading it out more and protecting those vast wild places in the high seas that are so critical for a life support system. I think most people would know that fishing or overfishing has been one of the main threats to uh, to species beyond uh, territorial waters. But you've mentioned there's others as well. There are other newer, different threats that uh, that need to be taken into consideration. Yeah, I mean, until World War II, really, um, the high seas were largely off limits, uh, places where very few people ever went. Um, they were mainly used for shipping to bring goods from one country to another or people for that matter, because at that time, you know, international air traffic wasn't what it is now. Um, and they're still used for that. But other uses have come online. So first fishing after World War II, fishing fleets really expanded quite rapidly out onto the high seas. And concerns were raised about the sustainability of those fishing techniques. So about 40 years ago, the first high seas treaty came in to specifically look at, at fish stocks and their sustainable management and organizations were set up slowly to deal with those issues imperfectly so far. There was no instrument for doing conservation per se on, on the high seas. And that has become even more pressing now, not just with fishing and shipping, but also deep sea mining is something that is becoming very real. And the 
a threat or opportunity, depending on how you want to look at it, to, to mine minerals from the deep sea floor, which could have large environmental impacts. Ocean fertilization to draw down carbon. The high seas is a very large carbon store, and as such, it's important not just to biodiversity, but also to fighting climate change and others. So there's there's a number of industries that are that are coming online. A lot of pharmaceutical companies are interested in those potentially millions of undiscovered species out there that could har harbor the next cure to cancer or other genetic resources that could be used to improve human life. So. There's a lot of potential wealth out there, um, but also the risk of repeating the mistakes we've done on land and mostly in coastal areas. So it really is the world's last wilderness. So protecting at least 30% of it is, is an enormously important step in the right direction. How would this work in practice then? How, how, does, uh, how do all these nations decide what is it, what are the high seas? And I, I know there's legal definitions of it. Mm -hmm. how, how do they collaborate to make this work? Yeah, so the high seas are well delineated. Um, we we know we know where they are. The question is, where will those protected areas um, go? Now, one thing you have to know about the high seas is that it doesn't belong to any particular nation. We all own it. So legally, it's actually defined as a common heritage of all mankind. Meaning, you and I and all of our listeners, we're we're all own it, like in a very real legal sense. You could go out there and say, this is mine, but it's also everybody else's. And as we know, right. with these shared, shared resources, that can be tricky. You know, sometimes, you know, you do the right thing and you take care of it collectively, or um, it becomes a race to the bottom where everybody's just grabbing on to whatever they can. And the latter has been a little bit more of, of the dynamics on the high seas. So that's why this, this new treaty is so so urgent and so important is, is to try to, to do the right thing and extend uh, the protection of critical biodiversity to that vast space, that last wilderness we have. Horace Worm is a professor of marine conservation biology at Dalhousie University in Halifax. We're talking about a UN high seas treaty agreed upon in principle over the weekend. Professor Worm called it one of the most important moments in his lifetime, which tells you all you need to know about how significant it is. There are still some hurdles to cross here. I understand there's some debate over what it, what is protected, what is sustainable, mm -hmm. just how it's going to work to some of the other nations who have perhaps have different interpretations of territorial waters um, are also looking at this and figuring out whether or not they can agree to it. So still some hurdles to, to cross here. Yeah, for sure. And uh, so the first step now is that individual countries need to ratify this treaty. Those countries need to take individual steps within their legislations to, to say, okay, now practice, you know, how are we going to do this? How do we have the governing bodies, decision-making processes? How do we compile the scientific information to decide where those protected areas would go? Their proposals in the past, and it's not like terra incognita, like we, we, we know some of the very rich places. For example, um, close to here, the Sagasso Sea um, is a wild place off Florida and the Carolinas, and it has these drifting seaweeds that are home to a lot of fish and species that own her there, and it has been um, caught within the desert of, of high seas waters. And so um, that, that will be one of the examples of those places that probably will come up for discussion. But then the question is, when we protect it, what does that actually mean? And unfortunately, protected areas a bit of a loose term in that um, one person sees sustainable use as a, a good way of protecting an area. Another person thinks it should be completely off limit. And that hasn't been clearly defined as of 
as of yet for the high seas protected areas. So clearly some work will have to go in to say how strong will that protection actually be? What will be allowed? What will not be allowed? And I personally think the IUCN, the National Union for Conservation of Nature, guidelines that govern protected areas in nearshore areas are, are, are well, well working there, which say the protected area must not allow any industrial extraction, and it needs to be set up specifically protect species first and foremost. Deep-sea mining would probably be incompatible with that definition. That's widely accepted now, but hasn't been ratified for the high seas. Right. Uh, enforcement is always an issue, right? Because it's one thing for countries to agree on the wording of something like this, the symbolism of something like this. It's a very different thing for them to actually stop doing whatever. I mean, overfishing continues to be a huge problem, very difficult to enforce. Uh, mm-hmm. how, how would this particular treaty, uh, how would you enforce those protected areas? Well, um, I think this is where we've actually made huge progress um, because of technology. So uh, fishing is a good example. Fishing on the high seas is actually becoming a lot more sustainable as we speak because our technological means of observing fishing vessels um, far away from shore have improved incredibly over the last 10 years through the use of satellite technology. And I've been part of research efforts where we've um, compiled these huge databases of all the vessels out there and what are they doing, identify where they're fishing, whether it's compliant with existing regulations, not just in the high seas, but elsewhere as well. Um, And the same would be true for any activity out there because they all require ships and those ships are very visible from space. You can track them. You can analyze their behavior using artificial intelligence and understand what it is that they're doing from their behavior. Of course, not everything can be seen. For example, what exact species of fish are they bringing on board? Are they keeping them? Are they throwing them back? Things like that. But uh, that can be followed up with, with other enforcement tools, like when they come into a port state. Now, we have a port state agreement where a port state that welcomes a ship to offload its cargo actually has the legal means of inspecting that cargo and uh, enforcing international regulations. So we've made big strides, I think, in in terms of enforcement. And um, I think that's less of my worry. My main worry is really um, that the agreement gets watered down in practice and that protected areas are only put into places where nobody really is interested. And so it doesn't really move the needle. Um, So we have to make sure that doesn't happen, but they're put into the right places that are biologically important. And yet you began by saying that it was perhaps as a marine conservation uh, expert, an excessively important day. So it means it is a huge first step. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's, it's aspirational, right? It's like, when you get married, it's a big day. But then, sure. how do you actually, you know, uh, build that relationship and 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 carry it forward? The day to day routine of doing that it, it can can look very different. So, yeah, I think it's the same here. Like the aspiration is one hundred percent on target, and I'm really happy we're doing this. And these, you know, people are sometimes a little cynical about UN agreements, but these things actually do trickle down. They actually have a large effect on where investment goes, uh, where research goes, and where people are looking, um, whether people are, you know, keeping to make us accountable for what's happening out there. It has large effects in all of those processes, and that's what's making me hopeful, um, despite some of the challenges on how will it exactly be implemented. But now the world looks at this, and so it's not a kind of hidden place anymore. It's, it's very much in the limelight, and I hope it stays there for some time to come. Yeah, and getting 190 countries around the world to agree on anything is rare, let alone something such as a treaty to govern the high seas, or at least to protect the high seas. You know, exactly, Ben, and I agree with that. And 
It's just that every one of us has to help to take the next steps into making these visions a reality and actually recovering some of what we've lost over the last 50 or 100 years. Well, Boris, I'm glad. I'm glad it was a big day. I knew it was sounded big, but I didn't realize it was just such. So it was quite that important. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Always good to talk to you. Sorry, but it's a fact that there is such a thing as manners, a way of treating people. These fish have manners. These fish have manners. In fact, they're coming with me. I'm starting a new company, and the fish will come with me. A scene from Jerry Maguire there. Do fish have manners? I never really thought about it too, too much. They seem quite well behaved in general, depending on the fish. But certainly there are some, uh, well, we wouldn't say they were ill-mannered, would we? We would say they're sort of just doing what they do, right? Goldfish, some nearly as big as a football, are invading British Columbia's lakes and quickly spreading, putting native fish populations at risk. Brian Heisey is an associate professor of the Department of Natural Resource Sciences at Thompson Rivers University in Kamloops, BC. Brian, thank you so much. This is quite the story. Oh, well, thank you for having me, Ben. I'm really excited to talk about goldfish. Indeed, because everyone just thinks, I mean, I think of goldfish as those little ones like in Jerry Maguire, right? The little, little one you go with well, the scoop and they come in a plastic bag. Is that what we're talking about? Well, that's how they start out anyway, yes. So we're talking about the regular goldfish that you get in your, your regular pet shop or you might have it out in a, a backyard pond, something like that. But while they stay small because they're limited in the amount of food that they have in an aquarium, once they get out in our natural water bodies, a lake or river, they tend to take off and they get quite large. And so I've been saying they have about the size of a football are the ones that we've been sampling in British Columbia. But if we really want to think about the potential here, in Australia, they grow up to 41 centimeters long. So that, that's even larger. We're talking how, about how, how several big, kilograms. How big is that? How big is so that? That sounds, yeah, that sounds like, like, a, yeah, like a medicine ball. Well, yeah, it's like two footballs almost. So <laughs> they're actually quite large and they actually quite, cause quite a few problems. What is it about the goldfish? Because again, they seem so innocuous in the tank, but what is it about their abilities to survive in the wild that makes them so invasive? Well, I think they're an excellent uh, invasive species because they're so tolerant of poor conditions that our local fish, such as rainbow trout, can't handle very well. So just to give you some examples, they can handle temperatures uh, down to freezing and up to 43 degrees Celsius. They can handle uh, salt water. So if we had some out around the, around the coast, they'd be able to actually move from one river system to another by going through the, the brackish water and around the edge of the ocean there from, from one watershed to another. And in an amazing ability, they can actually survive without oxygen. They're, uh, you know, goldfish and a few other species of minnows are the only vertebrates on the planet that can go without oxygen. They go into anaerobic respiration, which means they don't use the oxygen and they just produce alcohol as a byproduct. And so basically, they're almost super fish, very hard to kill. Unbelievable. I'd never, ever thought that deeply about the goldfish. I had goldfish as a kid, just like everyone else did. Yeah. I, I I can only imagine how bad their life, their conditions were in my little tank because they most of them <laughs> didn't survive for too long. Sadly, uh, they also reproduce at a ferocious rate, don't they? And 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 with relatively with relative ease. They do indeed. So the uh, goldfish, there's been a control program going on. Uh, around Quenelle, uh, there on Dragon Lake. And there, the goldfish that were taken out had on average about 50,000 eggs per female, which is a, a huge amount. But That's... not only that, but they are 
spawners that can spawn more than once a year. So you'll actually see goldfish go out there and spawn, let's say, three times during the, the summer season. So you have to start multiplying all, all that together. And as if that wasn't enough, they're also a special kind of breeder. They uh, have a special process, gynogenesis, in which the female goldfish doesn't actually need a male goldfish to reproduce. So what she'll do is, is produce eggs. She'll steal sperm from other species of minnow in the lake, and that sperm will then start her eggs developing, but they aren't actually fertilized. And that means that really each female goldfish is producing clones of herself in the lake. Brian, if I didn't know better, you'd be des- describing the most horrific horror movie, right? <laughs> I mean, they really, they really are quite, quite amazing predator, little, little, yeah, invasive. They, they are. Fortunately, don't they don't go around biting people. <laughs> that's fortunate. No. But, but they do bite other things, and that's part of the concern I have is that they do disrupt the ecology of our local lakes and ponds, and they do it in a number of ways. One way is that they actually root around in the bottom of the lake. They, that's their way of foraging for benthic food, meaning food that's living in the bottom mud of the lake. And when they do that, they create turbidity or, or muddy water. That cuts down on the light. They uproot the plant, so the plant growth is, is poor. They tend to also feed on the same food as our rainbow trout do. So they're eating plankton in the water column or aquatic insects on the bottom of the pond. And so that's going to affect our fish, but also people like amphibians. Amphibians are under a lot of stress around the world these days. And goldfish are known to actually eat the eggs and young larvae of some amphibians. And so if we have some amphibians in our local lakes, they're actually at, at being threatened by these goldfish. Yeah, so they are pushing other things out. I mean, this is a big problem, uh, or we wouldn't be talking about it. But uh, you, you said rainbow trout, amphibians, so, so they are damaging uh, where they are. And again, as you mentioned, that they, they reproduce at such a rate that it must be hard to control. It is. It's very hard to control. There's a, a few different ways you, you could use, I guess. One is if you have just a simple little pond, like a little pond on a golf course, you can drain the pond and, and that takes care of it. Uh, if it's a larger water body and you don't have any particular in, in species that are sensitive in there, any endangered species, you could apply a chemical called rotenone. And this is a naturally occurring chemical that is found in the uh, roots of some uh, plants from South America. And the chemical, when added to the water, it actually kills everything that breathes through gills. So it would kill all the fish in the lake. And then you would go back to, afterwards and put back in rainbow trout if that was the, the fish you wanted to have. So that's one way of, of getting them controlled. Another way would be to go in and do something called electrofishing. And in electrofishing, you, you either have a backpack uh, apparatus or you outfit a boat to put current in the water, it stuns the fish, then you scoop them up, and, that, and then you can kill them. And so that's your way of controlling them. Wow. And this is all, and where have they come from? I mean, is this, I'm, I'm just picturing people, you know, flushing goldfish down the toilet kind of thing. Is that, is that, is that where they're coming from? <laughs> no, I think the main thing is just releasing pets. Right. And so it's really people, like you said, you had a cute little goldfish when, when you were young. And so people are taking those cute little goldfish. They get bored of them after a while. They want to get rid of them. And so they just decide, well, let's just let it loose. So just like some people will release snakes out in the wild, things like that. And in surveys in, in down in Washington State, uh, they found that uh, six, six and a half percent of people surveyed admitted to releasing their live fish out into their local lakes. And that's the proportion that admit it. Of course, lots more are going to actually be doing it. So I think that's the problem there. And they put them in as little fish, but then they start growing bigger and bigger. And that really creates our major problem. 
And they've been moving. Um, yeah. I, I, that's yeah. not just people dropping fish into different bodies of water. They, they clearly they they reproduce enough to start to move around, right? Yeah, they certainly they've been moving around in our local lakes, uh, but I don't know as I've seen anywhere where they've moved around from one lake to another in British Columbia. I think it's just them being dropped off by different people, but they have that potential. For example, one study done in, in uh, let's see, it was in Australia. So you've got, you've got your goldfish. They moved up to 231 kilometers in one year. They actually wow. tagged them. They put little, little receivers in them and followed them around. That's a long way <laughs> for a little goldfish. Uh, but again, those are the goldfish that are getting bigger than footballs. And so they could, they could move up to uh, five kilometers per day in some of the river systems there in Australia. So there might be a bit more of that going on. There's some work going on in Lake Ontario. They're putting transmitters. DFO was doing this research, and they're putting transmitters in the fish to follow them around. So it would be exciting to see the results of their study. So not a BC-specific problem either, clearly. No, clearly all over the place. They, they started in Asia, but they're found all over the world. They're found throughout different provinces in Canada, and uh, I, I think they just keep spreading and spreading. What, um, I mean, I, you're going to have to, it, it will get worse, right, unless we do something about it, presumably. I, I think so. I think we need to control it, uh, and I think it's because some of our valuable resources, such as salmon, could be at risk. Goldfish have a number of different parasites, uh, and when those parasites get into our native fish, they could cause problems. There's one particular parasite that's called ick. It's like little white dots. Uh, you can sometimes see them in aquarium fish, and it, and if this ick got onto our native fish, it could actually cause problems. And actually, ick caused death of some uh, sockeye salmon up in the Skeena system back in '94 and '95. So we, it wasn't from goldfish in that case. It was probably from native fish. But there's certainly the potential to spread some of these like 23 various diseases and parasites that goldfish carry into our native salmon and trout. You've, been, you've paid a lot of attention over your career to invasive species. Are we paying enough attention to this one? I, I No, I think it's kind of sneaking under the radar so far. So I'm kind of raising the flag a little bit here. I think we should do a bit more. And I think the big action here has to be working with the, the pet trade. And so we have, I think the government can take more action. I think we've got some great public education programs. Uh, some of the NGOs, such as the Invasive Species Council of BC, have great programs educating the public. But I think we have to have government working more closely with the pet trade to make sure that if you go and buy a goldfish at a pet store, that the pet store people tell you that, yes, you can bring this fish back if you no longer want it and don't release it back into the wild. Uh, it's bad for the, for the fish themselves often or the snake or the bird that those pets that people release. And it's also bad for the environment. It just seems unconscionable sometimes that, I mean, I'm sure every, I'm sure everyone's done it at least once. I'm sure a goldfish seems like the most innocuous thing to put in the water, right? Uh, oh, and they're kind of, they can be yeah. kind of pretty under the ice too. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> look, yes, the latest is what Munson Pond, I think it's called in, in Kelowna. You can see the, the goldfish swimming around under the ice there apparently. So, But what a terrible idea. I mean, what would your advice to, to all pet owners be if they're listening tonight? I mean, you know, I, I know they know better, but. Yes, I think it's just just make sure you don't put them back in the wild. So whether it's taking care of them yourself or re almost regifting them to maybe uh, another pet lover <laughs> or or maybe to a local uh, local local zoo or something like that, or take it back to the pet shop. That's my big thing: is that we want to make sure that we do the right thing. We're not releasing our our pets out into the wild where they can cause quite a problem for our local wildlife. 
I don't think I've been in a pet shop for quite a while. Are there signs? Are are there? Is there advice to owners when they buy fish to to dispose of them in a way, or at least to not release them into the wild? Not that I've noticed anyway, but I imagine that does vary from one place to another. I know that the uh, official organization for pet uh, pet shops in the country they're aware of this issue and they are trying to do lots of education of their members but i think to my knowledge everything is voluntary at this point and perhaps we need something a little stronger than that well brian hasey i had no idea that goldfish were quite so a uh fierce and, and B, terrifying <laughs> it's uh, yes. and the size of and you know the size of a football a cfl football i assume is uh yeah. that's a big goldfish that's a big goldfish. that is Yes, although uh, comparing them to footballs uh, made me realize that, gosh, I guess I should say American or Canadian footballs. So I looked <laughs> it up. And apparently, Canadian American footballs are now about the same size. So really? there, I learned something okay. tonight. Yeah. Well, I, so did I. <laughs> Brian, it's been, it's been more than educational. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it.